Welcome to Homebrewish Homebrew. We're a podcast that features conversations amongst people who love games. Hopefully by listening to us, you'll be entertained, you'll learn a little bit, and hopefully be delighted with the content. I am your host, Elmer, and as usual, I'm here with the other host, Rodney. Hey, Rodney, what's up? Hey, Elmer. Um, I got a, I got a top five for you. This is the top five themes that we've been doing with, with our podcast, because we're almost about seven or eight episodes in. And uh, I'm just going to roll these out and then give me your thoughts. Number five is the thing we've heard most about is uh, people going from 3.0 to 3.5 to Pathfinder. Number four, Vampire the Masquerade people are a little different. Number three, Rifts is very hard. Number two, no one can get a Shadowrun game. And the number one thing we've heard is no one is a fan of 4E. And, and that's kind of kind of the top five kind of running themes we've had for the podcast so far. I wanted to get your thoughts on those. I think that's interesting, and what I would like to do is find some people when we record next season who oppose those views or have a oh, definitely. take on them. Let's uh, go for some diversity of thought here. Um, and uh, our guest is Neil Litherland, and he is an author and creator in the RPG space. He's also a super nice guy that I met during my time as a pizza slave, and uh, <laughs> I'm super excited that he's here to talk to us today. Hey, Neil, you want to say hi to the listeners? Hello, listeners. Yeah, hope, hopefully everything's going on, you know, well out in Plagueland, wherever you happen to be. <laughs> you know, for the listeners who aren't familiar with your work, why don't you tell them a little bit about what you do and some of your publications? And, you know, this is the time to shamelessly plug. There will be a short Absolutely. at the end, but now is when you're... Well, folks who are not familiar with my name uh, may have heard of some of the other stuff I do. I run the blog Improved Initiative. Uh, taking 10 for, for some folks because I couldn't actually have the, the name be what I called it for some reason. Uh, I also run the Literary Mercenary, which is for you know writers and folks who are, are looking to make money at that particular craft. You'll find me on Vocal. I've done a lot of publications through various RPG companies. I was fortunate enough to work with Paizo at the start of my career. Very briefly, I'm not that important. Um, but you'll find me with Azekale games, high-level games, I've done stuff for World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness, Pathfinder, 5e. If, there, if there's money attached to the project, you will find me sniffing around it somewhere. <laughs> uh, can you tell us uh, what a couple of your favorite publications are? Hmm. That you've, that your publication. Oh, okay. Um... Something I've been I've been having a lot of fun with uh, lately is I am I am generally not a big homebrew world guy because that takes a lot of time and energy. But I figured I would give it a good stab. And this whole year I've been every single month putting out new books for uh, my setting for both Pathfinder Classic and D and D Five E of Sundara's Dawn of a New Age, and it's it is trying to basically grab that classic fantasy feel that we all know but to just eliminate as many of the tropes and limitations that we've all just kind of accepted because they've been a part of the genre basically since it was started. So it's, you know, things like no alignment, no ca- no world-ending cataclysms, none of that nonsense. Did you say it was Sundara? Yes. Um, so the idea here is that we are interviewing you as a gamer, so we're going to talk to you a little bit about your game experience, the current game that you're in, any opinion that you have. And then you are going to tell us a little bit about your approach to character generation as a special type, which um, is nice because I think that newer gamers are, uh, would probably appreciate a little bit of assistance with figuring out new characters. So let's get started with your origin story. When did Absolutely. Neil, uh, when did Neil start playing role-playing games? 
there's oh there is there is it was very odd because as much as i love this hobby and i spend most of my professional energy on it at this point it actually took two or three times for me to get into the hobby of back when walden books appeared in malls this is how folks know we're getting old of i found the i actually think i gave it to you when i rediscovered it of i bought the old like second edition red box i don't think you gave it to me but if you want to send gifts i can give you a dress after that is fair you know, because I I just thought it was a cool thing with a dragon on it, and I had zero clue what it was, but it was on sale for, like, 80% off or something because no one had bought it. So I bought it, and I took it home, and it was me and my friend. We were reading through it, and it was very interesting, but we had no context for what it was or how to play it. We also didn't realize it needed more than two people, so it went very poorly. <laughs> I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but uh, I actually started with the Red Box because um, I started gaming with my brother-in-law, and mm -hmm. before they let me make a character, I had to read through the entire, like, old Red Book and answer Oof. his question. Damn. So, that just yeah. seems harsh for a child. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, so, so after that, I, I put it under my bed and I forgot about it for many, many years. And then I, I made a friend who never described them as RPGs to me. It was just more of, like, a, a quote-unquote story game that he was enjoying. So I'm like, oh, I'll give it a try, whatever. And it was entirely homebrew. It was just one player, one GM, and it was... I was enjoying it, but I wasn't sure what exactly was going on. And it was the, the third time I actually got invited to a game was my freshman year of college. I met a guy in one of my um, sociology classes who, who asked me if I wanted to come join his friends for D&D. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. And then I sat down, he was, he was showing me all the stuff, and I'm like, oh, wait, I have one of these. This is under my bed. But, you know, by then, that was right during the 3.0, 3.5 transition, so, like, no one had to explain to me how Thacko worked again, which was glorious, because that was awful. Man, like, from, from that point forward, it was just like, and how many different versions of this are there? Yeah, there's one with vampires, you say. <laughs> well, let's, let's just get all of them. So, were your, were your early games primarily with that college group, or, like, how did your circle expand or change? It was uh, the guy who ended up inviting me to game uh, eventually became my roommate, and he brought his massive collection of games with him. And for, for all persons who have been a part of a group long enough, he was unfortunately that guy who you know, was one of the reasons where it's like he was always getting new groups together of people he'd never played with before, because once you'd played with him half a dozen times, you're like, uh, this isn't worth it, and then they would leave. Okay. So I got, yeah. I've run into a couple different that guys people described. Can you can you explain this that guy a little bit? Yeah, the the subgenus of this particular that guy is um, he was very obsessed with minutia of world building and doing things correctly and very very controlling for how other people like played their games or interacted with his world. And it's just, it got to the point where unless you could like cite chapter and verse where in I think it was Battletech in particular he had a, a very large affection for where unless you could point out where like this particular house on this particular planet during this particular time frame had the machinery you wanted, you couldn't have it, regardless of what the book said. And it was it was exhausting dealing with him. But you know, as a result of this I got very proficient at building characters from level one to level three. <laughs> It was, it was not until many years later where I actually got to finish campaigns, and I was like, oh, this is what that feels like. This is nice. We should do this more often. Yeah, it wasn't until I'd been gaming for quite a long time that um, I actually got to experience ending campaigns, and that was just because whoever was running, myself included, didn't come into it with the idea that we're telling a self-contained story. It's that 
we're role playing, so there has to be something different every week. Yeah, I've it was it's actually one of the more common questions I've seen both on forums and in the comment section of my blog. People asking like, how do I know when my game is over? And it was, it was that moment of if you're asking yourself, it's probably time to wrap it up. <laughs> See, my 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 response would be, you've seen a movie, right? So you know when a movie ends. Like if it feels that way in your game. You know, roll the credits, tell everybody good job, and start working on the sequel. Yeah, and, you know, before they come over next time, make them give you $20 and some popcorn. That's fair. But, uh, so, I, I know you mentioned that homebrew is kind of, can be kind of exhausting. Um, do you have a preference between homebrew or running pre-created content from someone else, like an adventure path? I definitely do. Of Generally, it's it's kind of that whole, like, home cooking versus fast food of some people are amazing cooks, some people think they are amazing cooks. And, yeah, but if I go to McDonald's and I order, like, my usual, no matter where I am in the country, no matter, like, it's like what time of day, I have a certain assurance of quality or lack of quality that it will possess. And so that's, that's sort of my, a similar judgment I have of, do I trust the person who's running this game? It's like... What have they done before that I feel confident in? Because if it's if it's somebody that I don't know or I've had bad experiences with, and they're telling me like, no, this time it's going to be different. I got a, I got a completely different recipe. So not interested. Don't don't want to know. Last time you put ghost peppers in your bread because you thought it was a great idea. I, but yeah, you know. <laughs> I kind of was getting like a like a Jerry Springer vibe for a second there. Take me back, baby. I changed. Like you're not you're not wrong. <laughs> But, you know, there, there are some other people who, like, you know, they'll sit down and, like, they'll give me the pitch. They'll give me a full sale of, like, this is what I want to do with the world. These are the inspirations I'm drawing on. Here's some things I think you will like. And I'll be like, yes, that sounds amazing. When do we start? But, you know, it's, and also there's the major advantage I found of, like, pre, specifically if you're using a pre-generated world, even if you're creating your own story within that world, it creates a written-down just going to repeat setting, but there's there's a document that everybody can go to, and so like the DM doesn't have to keep track of all the social details of what year is it, what's the calendar, like what's the current social situation in this particular nation, and what's the history of orcs in these mountains. So you can look all that up on your own if you care. Did you? Ever, and yes. Have you ever played a Dragonlance game? I have read Dragonlance novels, and I think that's enough for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm just uh, I'm just thinking about it because, like, you mentioned tracking the date. And one of the things mechanically in 2nd Edition Drance that seemed really awesome when you read it, but when I played it, it was terrible, was for all of the, the different robe colors of magicians, based oh. on the moon phase, they would be weaker or stronger. And there was a chart that tracks, like, the the moon phase for each of the three separate moons, and the GM was supposed to be keeping track in the game about how much time had passed, so which moon was was waning or waxing. And my experience every time somebody did that is it just came down to whichever character they liked the best, their moon was waxing at that time. So Yeah, it's it's, it's one of the there's there's a particular thing I've I've talked to a lot of designers and a lot of people who think they are designers and who are looking for outside feedback and help. And that's usually one of them of complexity versus flavor. Of like, if something doesn't need to be mechanical, don't don't make people track it. They're probably keeping track of enough crap as it is. They don't need an additional chart of like, what part of the body did this particular arrow graze when you miss? No one cares. Move on. <laughs> I, I I'm also hearing just echo through my mind the entire time. Name that encumbrance. 
It is it is a probably the most disregarded rule in any game table I've ever been at is encumbrance. It's one of those of I believe it was an early on back when Pathfinder still ran on three point five before Paizo had come out with, with their own system. Of my DM just chose to randomly roll the treasure we got from a goblin horde and it was something like twelve hundred pounds of silver coins. It was just that moment of like do you honestly care how we haul this out of here? Because there is a part of us is just like, we're in the middle of a swamp. We might just leave it here. We don't care that much. <laughs> There's a very, that, that that's an unusually wealthy goblin tribe, but good for them. Like, maybe they invested in the yes. market at the right time. Um, that, that's what I was hoping. They had hid it in an outhouse for some reason, though, just in case we forgot they were goblins. <laughs> I've kind of found that um, the, the gold coins, silver coins, platinum coins is also one that's really disregarded. And oh, yeah. most yeah, most DMs end up just going rolling with the gold and silver. Yes, it's. I have been in worlds that have Electrum, or so I've been told. It has <laughs> never shown up in game. Yep. This is, where is it? I don't know. It's in the temple. The wizards are messing with it. Whatever. It exists, apparently, somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I used Electrum for quite a while, and to me, it just ended up adding more math to the system, and, you know. But that's not what it needed. <laughs> yeah, you already have enough math, especially when we were trying to figure out Dacon. Uh, yes. Um, math and reverse math. But to, to come back around, you were telling us about the player experience for uh, homebrew versus modules, but when you run a game, do you prefer to use pre-generated content? I, the only, it's, as I've, I've said this before when, when telling people about my setting, of if I was not being paid to do it, I would probably never create my own setting from scratch. Now that I have, I, I can, I academically understand why there are people who like this, but I, I do not have, like, the time and energy to do that just for fun. And, you know, yeah, while, while it is possible I will run something in Sundara eventually when I get enough like, material out for it, uh, every game that I have run and am planning to run in the near future is based in a pre-existing world. I have like one game that I want to do in Galarian, the, uh, the setting for Pathfinder. I have a, a pub game, essentially, for some folks who want to learn Werewolf the Apocalypse. But you know, it's, World of Darkness is kind of inherently tied to its own settings. So that that's a harder one to remove. Yeah, World of Darkness, I think, is one of the few remaining game systems that has a very strong meta plot. Like, I, I think the meta plots were very popular in the '90s and 2000s, but less so today. Yeah, it's like I I can think of very few games. If they have a meta plot, it's usually connected to like a specific set of mechanics and they'll release various different versions of it i think powered by the apocalypse does that um savage worlds does that that's that's kind of what i associate savage worlds with it's one of the reasons i like the games um call of cthulhu maybe i guess I don't know. The, those warhammer games kind of have a meta plot too yeah i guess if you're going if you're going over there <laughs> yeah. a flexible meta plot but a meta plot nonetheless meta plot. yeah <laughs> Um, I, I know from looking at your blog that you've run at least Rise of the Mars, um from Pezo. I was just wondering, do you have like any pre-generated content as far as stories go, or adventure paths, modules, whatever you want, that you would recommend uh, to the audience? Ooh, um, uh, far as stuff that I had a hand in making, um, probably the most popular one that's currently released has been uh, False Valor, 
which uh, it's a 5e one-shot low-level module. Uh, it's specifically meant to be one of those of like, if you have people who've never played before, they can play this. If you have people who are familiar with the game and they're looking for something different, hey, it's a murder mystery, have fun. And uh, my, my personal uh, pitch that I have for people who still aren't sure about it is, have you ever wanted to kick the Proud Boys in the teeth? Here's a fantasy <laughs> version of what you want. <laughs> I really hope that's somewhere on the cover of the book because that I, I wasn't really interested in checking it. I know, right? You tell uh, the yeah the the basic plot of of False Valor without giving any twists and turns away is there was a conflict you know several generations ago between this particular group of you know, human farms in the dales and you know, the elves of the forest. There was a territorial dispute. It led to some very very nasty and bitter things on both sides, and now you know it's. It's been kind of dormant for a while, but you know, a local girl has been found murdered with what was the calling card of some of the elven irregulars, and now there are people saying that we should have finished what our grandfathers started. Oh, so yeah, and so the the players kind of have that option of like, I right, this is the situation. What you gonna do? I am going to write a sternly worded letter. And <laughs> That's fair, but uh, <laughs> okay. You know, outside of that, um, another another service we like to provide is uh, knowledge of you know either either out of print or less easy to find games and supplements. Um, you know, for example, I recommend the uh, second edition complete book of villains to everyone. Um, oh yeah, is there I never heard about that. Any out of print book you can think of, or I found that it's I found that it's out of print. It made me sad because I was recommending it to everyone, and now they can't buy it. Is grim. I know I read I ran it a little bit for you. I didn't get to finish that particular like campaign because my head was falling apart at the time. Yeah, but yeah, for for anyone who hasn't played it, Grim is a fairly rules light game. It's basically if you have two d6, roll them. A two to a five, you succeed at the level on your sheet. A one, go down one, roll again. A six, go up one, roll again. You now know every, you know everything you need to play this game. And it's like you're all children. You've been sucked into the Grimlands. You have to figure out how to get out before you're either stuck there or one of the horrible boogeymen of legend ends up eating you. I I can say that uh, in that book, I particularly loved what they did with Rapunzel and the spiders. Yes, um, that was great. Without giving away too much, um, do you recommend a particular edition of it? Because I know that they had. Uh, the original, and then they had another edition where they incorporated like grade levels, and I never really learned the mechanics for that edition. Oh, yeah. Um, the original was oh crap, I don't remember who published the original one, but it was still it was a three point five sort of tag on, so it was it was very complicated for being an eleven year old. Uh, the one that I was running is is the one that you're discussing. Of uh, that one's a Fantasy Flight Games, I believe. If you can either find it or if there's a digital copy of it somewhere that I haven't been able to, excuse me, track down. Okay. Um, uh, additionally, I also know from from checking out your blog that you do a lot of interesting character builds, like a lot of them around. Uh, but like I, I seem to remember uh, turning Marvel characters into Fifth Edition or Pathfinder characters. Um, I really like to talk to people and find out what media inspires their their gaming experience. So what what inspires you? Of uh, that, I love that project very much. It has unfortunately had diminishing returns since I've started trying to breathe some more life back into it. So it's it's a lot it's a lot less regular than it used to be. Of uh, that whole idea actually started out of spite. Is there was uh there was a GM who was running his own homebrew game and it was he had many flaws. He has since grown as a GM. 
but one of the the many flaws that he had is he didn't know how to have villains who weren't wizards. Mm. So I made a Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but did just you to just recreate the the Loki scene from the first Avengers movie. Very close. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, just to add insult to injury, my Hulk was the cohort. He wasn't even the main character. He was my sidekick. But you know, I just I had so much fun with the build because it was right after Paizo had come out with the advanced um, race guide. So you got the um, the Master Shimmist for the Jekyll and Hyde Prestige class, and so I, just, I put up the build just randomly of Hey, I did this thing. It's fun. Check it out, Internet. And enough people were like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Do more. And I was like, Oh, that that's a lot of reads. I should I should continue this. And so I, just, I went through you know the rest of the the Avengers roster at the time. Anyway, it's since gotten a lot bigger, um, moved on to game of Thrones before the last season and everyone stopped caring, uh, you know, went through a couple of DC builds. And if, for anyone who's curious, Marvel is far more popular than DC, um, messed with some Warhammer 40 K stuff just because there's a crash spaceship in, in Galarian and it makes me happy. So I figured I'd mess with it. That, that I think harkens um, back to, like older versions of Dungeons and Dragons, which you had like the uh, barrier peaks that had laser pistols. Yeah. You know, uh, sci-fi and aliens, I think, have snuck into people out of traditionalists. Don't really want to admit that. Yeah, it is. It is actually a thing of I finally I finally found a way to put it in words because there were. It's been a a conversation that I've had with lots of people, and there have been many heated debates. And one of them is if you're going to this is just random piece of advice for anyone listening of if you're going to run a pre-generated world take it for what it is don't make assumptions about it and that is like one of the big ones of i kept running into people who were running uh pathfinder games like both when it was 3.5 and just after it had come out in its own edition and they would just be lifting off all these things about halflings or about how elves worked or about what you could and couldn't do with orcs. And I would ask them, like, where does it say that in the rule book? And it didn't because they were just using Tolkien rules. And they didn't seem to grasp that this is this is not a Tolkien setting. This is a Robert E. Howard setting. It's full of like, yeah, the elves are aliens and there's a weird, like, entire nation of barbarians fighting giant robot spiders. And there's just a hurricane that never ends and everything is insane. And if you can think of it, it's here. There's a pilgrim with a musket fighting zombies somewhere. I guarantee it. <laughs> uh, well, that was something I really liked about Galarian when it first came out. Because I remember when when Pezo came out with it, that it did have... Uh, in their first Gazetteer, which was just a really thin paperback book. Um, oh, I've, I've seen that book. I don't own a copy, but I've seen it. Every like every nation has a thing. So like, uh-huh. no matter what like flavor of sci-fi or fantasy you liked, you could find like if you wanted war between wizards, there was the, uh, the there were there were two countries that were like that. Neff, I think, is one of. Uh, it was Nex and Geb with their their weird war that caused the mono waste. <laughs> yeah, if you wanted if you wanted war between wizards, you had that. If you wanted Conan. Uh, I know there was, I, I don't remember the name of that country either, but uh, this is, these are vague recollections, but yeah, that's fair. Um, you know, I think that's one of the interesting things about role-playing is that, you know, your world can be set up to encompass as much or as little as you, um, so it always kind of confuses me when I run into DMs and, you know, maybe, maybe it's something as you, as you grow, it changes because I was a little bit like that when I was younger, who would have a very limited world. And I, I think that's kind of confusing. Like when you said it's. That, I was, I was gonna say, like, it is. It has been something I've been very salty about, and I, I try not to name names or to be like very vitriolic about it when I give out advice. But it's 
It is a thing I have, I have often said of nothing kills player interest in your game faster than being told no for no reason. And it's like there's a... Oh, so it, was a, it was an example I had of there was a um, someone running a werewolf game I was part of a little while ago, and it was one of those of like it's like I want to I want to play a character who like makes cool weapons for everybody else, and like when he's forced to fight, like grabs gigantic you know machine gun that he couldn't normally use because he's in giant werewolf form, and yes, the ST was like so he's a glasswalker. No, was, well you can't use a gun unless you're a glasswalker. It's like why not? Uh, because some random thing. And I was like, can you tell me which book that's in? I'll, if you're right, I'll look it up. That's fine. But it it boiled down to, like, this is attitude of ST. This is the way they view it. And even though it would have been more fun for the player and wouldn't have really disrupted the rules at all, wouldn't change it and just killed my interest in the game. And I'm not saying I'm a canary in a coal mine, but, like, less than three months after I left, the game had folded. Um. I, f- I find that um, kind of whenever the DM has to say no to me, you know, it helps that if you're going to say no, at least have a couple options or something similar yeah. to it that you can work with the player, with, you know, instead of just going no and shutting them down. Yeah, yeah. Is, that is that is great advice of it's like, you know, it's, you know, it's like, I'm not comfortable with this build. What about it do you want to do? Let's find another way of it's like, no, I don't want you to be like a half ogre. How about this typhling build that can look kind of similar and give you some of the, the similar powers or or something like that of like that is that is a great way to sidestep because then like player gets something, DM doesn't have as big of a headache. It's like everybody is happy, game can progress. Instead of like, no, go back to the drawing board and come up with something completely different that I'm not going to say no to. And that you won't be happy with anyway, so. Uh-huh. Yes, I think it's the what is it like like first no cuts interest by fifty percent. Like second no cuts another eighty. Third no at that point you're like, how much do I want to be a part of this? <laughs> yep. I- I'm wondering if you know how yes and is famous in the improv. If we should put oh yes in uh you know the the TTRPG world that uh maybe it should be no but yeah no because <laughs> <laughs> you know just thinking about about that in general um you know maybe we should have I should have asked you this earlier um. Do you find yourself more often a player or a game man? And do you prefer one or the other? Yeah, I definitely prefer being a player. Generally, if I'm going to be like a game master, it's for one of two reasons. It's either I have a bunch of newer players and there's no one to sort of bring them into the hobby and give them a good experience. So it's like, I need to start you all off on the right foot. I need to do my best to make sure that you enjoy this hobby. And going forward, like, you know... When you see a red flag, to call it a red flag. So there's actually uh, there's someone in my in my current gaming group who uh, learned under uh, one of one of your other guests. Alex was actually running her first game, and so like she was she was watching something like after playing with us for several months, and it's like I don't get it. Is this a joke? Why are they doing this? And I'm, I believe it was one of those of like horrible RPG horror story of like guy being super creepy toward female players and writing it off as like just being a bard or whatever, and she's like because that sort of behavior was just not tolerated or even joked about, she was just really confused why anyone would do that. And so it's not that extreme, but it's it's that sort of idea of just embracing people's creativity, trying to like get them into role-playing, yeah, give them their first set of dice, because that's what you do when you deal drugs. <laughs> and yes, yeah, give them like their first sort of, yes, like, if not a full campaign, like give them a couple of modules, see how they like it. And like the the other situation is if it's a game I really want to play, 
but no one else has played it enough to be enthusiastic enough to, to be the ST. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons I'm going to run a werewolf game. It's why I have kind of a, a module loaded up in my head for a Changeling the Lost, because I love Changeling, but no one else will run it. Uh, do you prefer Changeling the Lost or Changeling, uh, was it Dreaming? Was the Dreaming? Uh, I acknowledge that there are lots of people who enjoy Dreaming, Attempting to explain dreaming to someone who is not already familiar with it kind of sounds like Joe Rogan trying to tell you about a vision he had while he was on psychedelics. It's like, it's very meaningful to you, and the people without context are just looking at you like, and then what happened? As, as far as, like, I love Lost because it feels like it took the best ideas from Werewolf the Apocalypse and transposed them onto Fey nonsense mixed with Call of Cthulhu, and that is, like, my jam several times over. See, the, I, I've, I'm familiar with both, and I love the concept of loss, but I've never been in a game where the concept translated very well to um, Yeah, it was, to, to, to quote Alex again, it was the thing of, uh, it was like, if other people ran Changeling the way I talked about Changeling, he would love the game, but that, that rarely does that happen in his experience. Well, the other thing, and I've complained about this before, White Wolf kind of drives me crazy with giving names to things because they try to give these like evocative like very poetic interesting names to things but i can never remember what they are like what they do mechanically yep or like i think a lot about like humanity you know that's the stat in vampire how yeah, much of a, yeah. yeah. Like, where's your morality spin <laughs> it, it seems like every white wolf game they come out with they have something similar to humanity for like this individualized, I guess, magical race. Um, yeah. can't Everybody but werewolf. <laughs> but I have to learn a new vocabulary of it. Yeah, what is it? It's, the, it's the, the checklist of, like, do you have a sanity mechanic that depends on how moral you are? Do you have your own weird pocket realm that only people like you can, can get to? Uh, what is the name for your specific magical resource that you harvest to make your powers work? Uh, I think those are the big three. There's, there yeah. might be something else. Yeah, I, think I was like, what is the particular fetish that no one is talking about that you may be embodying? <laughs> I, I think that's a that's an element of it, too. Um, you know, we, we've had a couple people on here who have not been huge fans. Um, <laughs> that's fair. And it seems like you are a fan. So would you tell the listeners why they should play World of Darkness? This, this actually segues into a thing that I've been, I'm not going to say researching because I'm not like, taking surveys and cross-checking and I have no control group. This is just a thing that I've noticed of there are, in my experience, there are two types of people who are drawn to World of... Well, actually there's only one type of person with two different reactions of World of Darkness draws people with trauma. Just without without flaw. And there's there are people who want to embrace that and explore it. And those are usually people who watch slasher movies at night to unwind, and I fit very firmly into that group of people who are very much there for like the horror and the the archetypes that it's playing with. And then there are people who I'm not you know, they they're more interested in what's been called you know the the fangs as superpowers version of World of Darkness of they don't so much want to explore any of the darker aspects. They don't really want to deal with like jump scares, monstrous implications of, you know, it's the, one of the refrains I get from people who are not horror fans, but continually show up for every world of darkness game is I'm not interested in you know, fill in whatever torture porn film they know of. It's saw hostile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very confusing watching people show up to play a horror game 
who don't actually want horror in it, but who have read the book and know on paper that's what it's for. It's, it's, a, it's very difficult to have a conversation because there's just certain elements of language and just it's like archetypes and, and various, um, I suppose, just story points that you, know, you, you have to find other ways to communicate. I, I think uh, my experience with World of Darkness and why I tend to shy away a little bit was with the, the, the gaming group I did, I was with at the time, were mainly people of the second type. And um, I would say more than things as superpowers, it was some kind of like wish fulfillment. Like I think those particular people... There's elements of that if you take it far enough. <laughs> ...felt very powerless in their everyday lives. So the idea of playing a super strong, super fast vampire appealed to them on that level. Um, you know, I think maybe that sort of player is better off playing like fifth edition mid to high level if they want their masks and masks is a great game for that for for anyone looking for a superhero game that isn't super hard to learn um yeah it is it's fun Um, uh if but yeah anyone who either like played world of darkness and didn't really seem to get it or who isn't sure about it and like isn't sure it's the game they would like best of what I would suggest is because there's so many different versions of it of like have a real conversation like with yourself and your friends and ask like what is our favorite monster why is that our favorite monster you know they have stuff for vampires werewolves ghosts mummies fairies wizards if if you can think of it they have it and really exploring the concepts of the different archetypes of horror that each one embodies, you can do it as as deep or as shallow as you want. But it is, in the end, your game. So as long as you're all there for the same type of play, you'll probably have a good experience with it. Uh, yeah, it's one of those. But at the same point, don't go into a game that really isn't a kind of like genre or horror trope that you like and try to twist it out of what it really is on the page. Of It's one of those of like, if you're showing up to werewolf, there's going to be body horror. That's kind of its thing is like loss of control, loss of identity, like the savagery that lies beneath the skin, all of that. That's that's what it, that's the trope of the werewolf. Whereas, you know, vampire has that question of how long can humanity last in the face of the thirst, whether the thirst is, you know, addiction or violence or you know or craving of power, whatever whatever it represents for your particular character or your particular game. And then you have, you know, Lost, which is the question of, well, you know, how do you come back from an experience like that and learn to trust people again? Or, you know, for dreaming of how do you exist in a corporate hellscape where everything's trying to crush your dreams? <laughs> yeah, I, I always thought Lost was kind of about how do you deal with it when you've experienced a great trauma that shaped you, but also made you stronger than you were originally? Which, I mean, I don't want to dive too deep into psychology. I think the whole thing will fetishize each odd, but... I think it's, I, I think that that's the thing about Lost, uh, Changeling the Lost. I think you have to, I don't think it's a con game. I think it's a game that you have to play with people that you trust in that yes. are okay. No, no question. That are like, okay with having volunteered as an NPC at a convention for Lost, you get far more out of it with people that you know and like. <laughs> um, but, you know, to as the caveat on that of, it is entirely possible to play a character who got through their enti- their whole experience and is fine. People will look at you weird, but you can do it. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, you've, you've demonstrated a knowledge of quite a few different systems. So I was just wondering, what are you playing at the moment? At the moment, I am only in one game because, holy crap, life is busy right now. Um, my Friday group is currently uh, running through Hell's Rebels, which I have a 
a short story um, catalog, essentially, going for. Uh, I'm working on the third story in it. We just hit level four last night, because that's what happens when the DM's like, hey, the big boss is down there. Here's our extraordinarily intricate plan to get her to come to us with none of her backup. All right, we'll roll for it. And then it works, and then we'll just body her and leave. <laughs> Well, Which is an extraordinarily you're... satisfying experience. Is this the sort of GM, though, who's going to give you experience for circumventing the minions, or is that just lost because you're clever? So, oh, yeah, there, there is no XP in these games. That, that is the thing that has been left behind long ago. It is uh, also for just like another like GM sidebar for listeners. Of Particularly if you're running a... Um, a, a pre-planned campaign where its expected players are going to be a certain level at a certain point in order to take on the threats as they're written, you can probably ditch XP because if you end up penalizing players because you know, they, they sneak past the guards or they don't disarm the traps or whatever it is, you're just going to frustrate them and yourself because now they're underpowered because they didn't do what the writer thought they would do. And as someone who's written modules, you cannot predict what players are going to do. You can you can give it your best shot, but there's you know one out of every seven groups is going to take the path you expected them to. So it's it's way better to just look at like what's the CR of this particular chapter. Okay, you're all that now. Yeah, I uh, in my most recent game switched uh, from XP to milestone um, for 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 many reasons. Part of it is what you're talking about. Another part of it is that I only have so much time to plan a game and so much time to play a game. And trying to figure out how to cram in enough experience points for people to get their levels was becoming frustrating. Um, oh, it's it's exhausting. I will say alternatively, alternatively though, for GM sidebar, um, if you are someone who enjoys giving out XP and using that sort of system, what I tend to do is if I have a threat in a game and the players figure out some way I did not imagine to get through it, they get whatever experience, whatever challenge rating I had the encounter originally, plus one. I think creativity deserves extra point. Encourage that in my so. Oh yeah, yeah. It is. It is a, a definite thing to tack on to that. Of is I've I've had several GMs who like will get to the higher levels of the campaign and they'll just start complaining of like all you guys ever do is fight stuff. And then we remind them because every time we've attempted to talk to a thing or sneak up on it or anything, you just give them a surprise round and attempt to murder us. We finally got to the point where we realized, like, your only solution you were going to allow us was to kill the thing, so we stopped wasting time with other options. You know, and it is, it is, yeah. It just occurs to me now, there has to be a paper out there about it somewhere, or if mm -hmm. there's not, hopefully, you know, in college right now, we'll write it. Um, behavioral economics and role-playing game. Because that's what Ooh. you're describing. Uh, the, the GM had set up a system of risk and reward where every time you attempted a non-combat action, you were penalized. So eventually the lesson that you learned was that to get the most bang for your buck, you had to attack them before they could attack you, which mm -hmm. is perfectly rational, but I don't think that's the outcome most game masters are looking for. It's not, and it's... I, I will... There is, I'll, I'll give an ideal scenario. This actually happened during the, the Rune Lords game we went through. Of you know, for those who have not played Rise of the Rune Lords or who are not familiar with it, it was Paizo's like flagship adventure campaign when they first came out, and they wanted everyone to buy this thing. And we're gonna be great, and they made it very clear like when you showed up here of like no chaotic neutral assassins here. We want big damn heroes doing big damn hero things. We're fighting evil wizards and saving the world. And so like coming to this because like Elmer has shared a table with me. He is he is aware that I have a horrible dice curse. So I, I chose the most likely character to succeed, which was, like, everything is evil? Lovely, I'm bringing a pallet into this, and we're going to be as cracked out as humanly possible. And because every villain was evil, 
Just like yeah, they have started a fight and we have finished it, and then we move on. And there's this this scenario about halfway through where you have to go and deal with stone giants who are attempting to take over a certain town in preparation for a coup, and it's it's very strange because it feels like it, we just sort of stumbled into this plot. Which was an and we classic module, which I think they're trying to cram in to get people on. That would make sense. Business. That that jives. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Girl. Man. No, totally fine. That I love interesting factoids. But so, you know, we, we went into the mountain and was like, you know, find stone giants, fight stone giants, move on to the next group of stone giants. And we, we got into a side room where there were these, like, 13-foot-tall hags. And we all just had that moment as players of, oh, crap. We don't want to deal with this. Not after, like, just running through all those other encounters. And we had someone in the party who spoke giants who were like, to hell with it, we'll try it one more time. Go on, talk to them. And it worked. Uh, just like had like cool sort of Macbeth interaction, and the three hags gave us the information we needed. We didn't have to fight them, and then they just like teleported out afterwards because they were done with this new stone giant king and and his whatever. And like part of it, part of the reason we continually tried to to talk to the monsters we met is it worked once, and it was like the best experience of that night. And we wanted more of that. It just kept not happening. It took literally to the end of the campaign for us to just be like, okay, we're no more talking. We're done. Everything is evil from this point onward. Um, the other thing that was kind of interesting about Piezo Adventure Paths, I don't remember it happening in Rise of the Of course, it's been like 16 years since I read them, so I could be wrong. But <laughs> there was a trope for Piezo for a while where every adventure path, at some point, you'd have to make a bargain with something evil. Do you recall? I I can recall a couple of instances where you could have done that, and I believe we just chose to laser beam it in the face and move on with our lives. Of the one I'm thinking of, there's a scenario where there's a devil being held captive in a dam, and it's like his life essence that's powering it, and one of them has been permanently killed, so something has to happen to actually make it like function and stop drowning the town. Yeah, that, that, was, like, was, uh, that was in a... Uh... Hook Mountain Horror, after you got past the homage to uh, The Hills Have Eyes. Yes, because, like, right, it was not long after that that uh, Black Maga showed up and uh, is still swimming around somewhere in Galarian completely blind because Sunbeam is a broken ability. <laughs> okay, um, but talking about Hell's Rebels, you mentioned that. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that campaign? Absolutely. It is a... I got really excited about it because it was... There. There's... I'm going to call it a flaw, but honestly, it's probably just when you assign a bunch of different books of a campaign to a bunch of different authors and then collate them together into one thing, you get tonal shifts between books. That's just how it is when you have a group project and you don't have one person micromanaging everything. But playing uh, the various adventure paths, because I've, I've done four or five of them at this point, and there's always that, you, so you start off in a town, and this town is very important, and you know everybody here, and then after two or three books, you're going to hair off into the Great Wilderness on a fetch quest somewhere, and if you had built all of your stuff around your character being a part of this community, it feels really off for you to just get up and run away into the middle of nowhere. And it was, it was one of those of, this seemed to be the first game we'd tried to run that didn't do that. Uh, for people who aren't familiar, it's basically like in Cheliax, the the empire of devil-worshipping fascists. We are in a faraway town that's just kind of one of those of like, yeah, we do the salute and we pay our taxes, leave us alone, we don't want to deal with you. And they've sent a new lord mayor who has decided to remind us that we are part of the empire, and it's going about as well as you'd think. Well, that always goes great. 
people love that. That goes for especially when the central authority comes from a far away city and it's like from a person who basically got sent here because no one wanted to deal with him because he's a little too fashy even for them. But it was like I got really excited a because like it's not a stand in place and wait for the threat to come to you. It's a you guys are running the resistance. What do you do? So there's like a big sandbox element of it early on of you're resurrecting this like redacted group of freedom fighters, you're recruiting agents to work with you, you're trying to figure out how to how to win the hearts and minds of the people in the city to like get them ballsy enough to stand with you against like the Legion of Hell Knights and all the other nonsense that's coming down the way. And uh, for, for anyone who's been reading my stories on it, uh, the first one we had was a prequel because it was the first chance that I saw to really play a vigilante. And so we we just have like full on Batman nonsense going on here. So it's it's just a great deal of fun. Uh, it's I did not challenge myself too much of like all the players in the group are in on the secret, but like no one in game is. So that's that's kind of an extra fun element. Is that your favorite thing from that game, or do you have a favorite from that game you'd like to share? Mm-hmm. Thus far, my favorite moment, I think, uh, I'm sure we'll surpass this at some point, but one of the early challenges of, you know, you have the Dotare, you know, the, the Imperial regulars who are essentially the, the jackbooted police force who are, you know, instituting curfew and going around and making sure that everybody has their hand at the proper angle and there's a portrait of the queen in the first room of every building and all of that. And then you have the, the Chelish citizens group who are... Basically, just the brown shirts of their street gang and leathers going around, like, wearing national colors and punching anyone who looks vaguely not chelish enough and all the stuff that happens when you get a bunch of, like, really fashy folk in control. And we'd been kind of dealing with them off and on as the group went around doing stuff, and we'd gotten to a point where we were like, you know what? Screw these guys. And so I just sort of sort of turned to the, the GM and said, where's the bar where most of them hang out? And so we went and found, like, you know, essentially, like, the local skinhead bar. And we managed to trick all of them to going to the central plaza in front of where the new Lord Mayor had basically, like, yes, this is my front yard, all of you clear out. And so about 20 of them showed up, and we beat the holy crap out of them, stole all their stuff, and left them tied up around a main tree as a gift on the Lord Mayor's doorstep of, we found your bully boys, bye, and then just ghosted. (laughs) So definitely so punching Proud Boy. Oh, yeah. All day, every day, literally punching. That is what I built my character to do. So, you know, with all of these different games played, which role-playing system would you call your Um, At this point, I don't know if favorite is appropriate for Pathfinder. It's certainly my go-to because it's the one so many people like in, in the group know and, and we have content for it and we're going to have content for it for years at this rate, especially now that we have Pathfinder Infinite. Um... I really enjoy like the new world of darkness. I've looked at the the Chronicles, the second edition release they did. It hasn't sold me, but it's possible that might change. Um, you know, I've heard of a lot of people who've played World of Darkness for a while, like pining for the old edition. And you're saying you like new world of darkness. Can you kind of uh, yes, uh, explain? Why, yeah, why you like the new. World? Yeah, at least part of it, like, this is about 60 to 80 percent. Anytime you have someone who goes, like, this is this is my favorite edition because reasons, a huge part of that is going to be, like, this is the first one I learned, it's the one I know best, it's the one that made the first impression on me. I think it's similar to how, like, if you hear a really good cover of a song first and then you hear the original, you're still going to like the cover better, even though it's not the original. But I had that of, I played Vampire the Requiem before I played Masquerade. 
And so like that was that was a big part of it. That was my first impression. And then I went back to the older system. But another part of it is like I am very mechanics first as a gamer because it's one of those of I love story. I enjoy deep world building, but the mechanics are what allow me to interact with that. So if they're clunky or poorly designed or have problems, then it leaves me feeling frustrated that I can't realize what I'm trying to do. And there are just so many things that, like, looking back at the design of earlier editions of Masquerade, since Vampire is the easy comparison we have, of, I see what they were doing, and since it was the first game, it was kind of the flagship, there were no rules yet, they were still hammering all that out, but it's things like um, Generation as your, your power structure. They jettisoned that for Requiem, and I loved that so much more because it opened up vistas that previously an ST would be like, no, you're not you're not low enough, Jen, you can't do that. Yeah, like, Whereas, it was also weird, uh, now that you bring it up, this came up a lot, the vampire games that I played, that the only way to improve your, gener- your generation after the game started was to commit Diablery, but committing Diablery mm-hmm. basically put you in a position that any vampire that could leave auras would instantly view you as an enemy. So Yeah, and that is most of them. <laughs> so you want to go up in power, but the the most effective way to go up in power is kind of banned. And I mean, from a horror perspective that kind of makes sense, but it mm-hmm. makes it it harder in game because knowing that there are so many awesome abilities your characters can never attain. And it was you know, it's like a a good example of like if you wanted to play, for example, if you're in Masquerade, you want to play someone who was turned like either in the middle of or toward the end of the Viking Age. There's a specific generation or lower you have to be in order for the timeline to mash up. Whereas for Requiem, you could be like, no, that just happened. It's like, why aren't you more powerful? I've been asleep for two hundred years. What do you want? <laughs> well, like the thing that the thing that got me about it though is it basically became like in the World of Darkness game I played that every character you saw had the generation background. Like, those were points yeah. that you didn't really have because they had to be spent that way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the only game I've seen that it, really works about that, I don't know if you've ever seen it, was the Amber Diceless role-playing game. I've heard of it. I've never actually seen it. Yeah, well, you had to have either Pattern or Logris with their powers to do anything. Yeah. And one of them took half of your starting points, and the other one took... Why give yeah. me so many starting points if I have to spend them this way? Yeah, no. Then, then you don't have them. That's not how character design works. But yeah, and there's there's other little things because I'm I'm reviewing for Apocalypse, which has a lot of the same mechanical quirks. We'll call them of like that dexterity is always your attack stat, regardless of what you're doing. And it's one of those. I see what you guys were going for of like dex to hit, strength to damage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it makes it so much harder, especially when you're used to a system that's like, yeah, dex is for shooting, strength is for punching. Uh, no, that's not how physics works, but it's we're not trying to emulate physics. We're trying to be cool werewolves. So you're saying that you're not playing Traveler or GURPS? I have read GURPS once. <laughs> actually, I'm... I have been told Traveler is interesting. I've never actually cracked a cover. You're actually the uh, first person we've talked to who's really been very pro-crunchy mechanic. Um, I am definitely in the minority, I am finding. Uh, there was a, there's an article I wrote a little bit ago, and this is mostly a professional frustration, because like, as, as, a, as a player, I try to let people like, do whatever makes them happy. It, is, it does not lessen my happiness if you are playing a game I do not like. It does, however, frustrate me professionally when like, a thing that I'm trying to get approved is not seen as market viable because everyone is trying to play like, another version of D&D 5e. 
And like, there's no one person to hold responsible for that. It's just market moves and in, in swings and roundabouts. And like, we seem to be right now in a, we'll say high high flavor, low crunch sort of system. Of I have met several players. Well, I say met. I've, I've mostly been inside, so I have had conversations with lots of players online who feel that the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons is way too crunchy and requires way too much reading. And I'm just sitting here looking at them, and it's like, then what are you playing? And you're just like, here, I have a copy of Dark Heresy. Take a look at this. Yep. Yes. And to be fair, I read through that copy of Dark Heresy in a couple of hours, and I was enamored. <laughs> well, I, I think... So, oh, go ahead. Ron. So, Neil, you mentioned, um, you mentioned that you like Crunch. Uh, have you ever played Rifts, which is a running gag? I have sure. read Rifts. That is, I considered trying to play Rifts, but you know, it it does a thing that it's it's again speaking of like how you change over over time as a gamer of like when I was when I was starting out as a gamer, nothing would have made me happier than the basic concept of rifts of like bring absolutely any ridiculous concept we want. We'll bring it through like a portal from another reality and put them in one party. And nowadays it's that whole thing of like I would like a consistent genre. I would like all of us to be on the same page. Even if we're all being very silly, I want us to at least be silly from the same channel. <laughs> See, I think I think also like I'm gonna put some words in Neil's mouth here. Can correct me. Um, that uh, he enjoys crunchy games, but he enjoys crunchy games that make sense, not ones complex because they can be complex. And You're not wrong. <laughs> the, the problem with Rifts, though, is it's an extremely complex game, but you know balance doesn't really exist at all. Like, it does. I have heard stories. It does not. <laughs> No, you want to have a terrible time, make a rogue scientist in rifts and wait to see what everybody else like. Your your job will be to hold the party beer. Like that will be the extent of your involvement. Um and it is like it's like on that note of I've had I don't as it's it's a thing I've noticed of like I'm whenever I talk to like designers who are who are younger than me, which is weird thinking about it that way cuz I forget that I've been doing this this long of like they have very clear ideas of how games are supposed to be made based on you know, like what they what they came up playing because that's how we do things. But then I'll talk to other designers who like you know they were gaming when I was born, so they've been at this a very long time. And I'll ask them questions like, "Why are you using a percentile system? This is it doesn't do what you want it to do. Why are you bending over backwards to use percentile dice for this?" And like the reason is because they grew up playing Warhammer Fantasy. Percentile is just what their brain defaults to, and they never questioned it. And is there are lots of other things like from earlier eras of gaming? One of them is point is pointless complexity, often as like shoelacing rolls that doesn't actually add to anything. Where it's like you know, Here's charts with 19 different types of gun, but they all do the exact same damage and have the exact same, like, capacity. I can There's nothing you, different about them except flavor. <laughs> I can tell you exactly what happens with those charts, too. The players look mm -hmm. at the damage column and just go down it, and whichever one's the highest is the one they pick. Like, uh -huh. your, your description of those other 18 guns, wasted words. Don't care. Wasted pages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, having had to design... Well, had to. I've chosen to design new equipment so that anyone who buys you know, like my stuff for Sundara gets gets crunchy little goodies at the end of it because the, the the lore is great, but people can make lore on their own. So I, I like to give them a rounded experience, and that's that's one of the things. If if, if I want to make a new weapon or a new alchemical item, you know, like I'll have to find like what is it similar to, what makes this different but not inherently better, making what already exists redundant. And there's there's so many ways to mess that up. <laughs> 
I, I think that's a classic mistake that's made. That's why you get power creep in, uh, in RPGs, because you do want to give people different options, but it's very easy. It's better as a stand-in for... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, yeah, especially like redesigning all the species, which is what I've been up on like the past couple of, of months now. And so it's like putting in alternate traits for orcs and elves and dwarves and whatnot. And it's like, okay, what can I put in here that is not going to be the immediate thing everyone picks because the standard traits are now useless in comparison? It's like, you got to make it situational enough that it's still useful, but not so universal that it just becomes the new standard. I think uh, one of the great things about talking to you is you definitely have opinions about things, and they're definitely based on observation so i've been dying to ask you what is your least favorite rpg or rhetoric you've already heard about odom so <laughs> well if you uh, your two cents about it you're, you're more than welcome it is like you know without retreading old ground of you know the i don't know what version of of dreams and magic other people have read there are lots of people who think it's amazing i read it and thought like this game has an amazing concept it would be nice if anything in this book actually lived up to that concept. You know, it's like, is one of my main complaints, both as a player and as, as someone who, who designed stuff like this, was they didn't swap out word usage. So it's kind of like in D&D &D when they would use level for everything and it would just confuse everyone. Mm. If you did the same thing of like four separate abilities use the same word, but the word they're using is not the same idea in all of these different abilities so it just confuses everyone it was boof, it was a nightmare there's a really um, old order of the stick comic about the overused level and going up level i remember that comic because why would you want to go down a level so i can go up a level what it's, kind it's of, like that was the conversation the gaming community's <laughs> equivalent of who's on first you're not wrong like excluding either like homebrew games or like stuff that i saw but never came to market yeah, like that's the only one that I think I ever picked up and was like, no, under no circumstances. Like lots of other games, I'll have moments where it's like, I would play this with someone I really trusted, or like I would do a one shot of this if someone made a really good case for it. I'm getting to the point where like having done a campaign of like D&D's fifth edition of it is this is my controversial hot take of it really bugs me for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons are that it's basically a, a greatest hits list of everything that Wizards has come out with since, like, 3rd Ed. And no one seems to have caught on yet. And that bothers me. Can you, can you unpack what you mean by that a little bit? I can. Um, good example for it was, like, was like I playtested 5e when it came out. I was not overly impressed at the time. And then, like, got my hands on the book and I'm reading through it. I'm like... And to be clear, it is a perfectly functional RPG. I, uh, you can play it, it has options, you can do good stories with it, but as someone who likes to like customize every single aspect of my character, it's got that kind of MMO problem of it's like, here's your class, pick one of these three things it upgrades into, here's your choice of weapons, you're done, that's all you get. He's like, your meaningful choice as a player is very limited, even though there are lots of things for you to pick from. There's like four or five choices you get to make, and everything else is just done. But every time Wizards would have an announcement for like, we're coming out with a new thing, and I would get like, oh, so maybe we're, we're breaking new ground, let's, let's try something else. And it would just be a re-release of something I had played back in 3.5. And I'm watching everybody lose their minds for it, and I had that moment of like, oh god, I'm old. They don't know this is old. Tread. 
It's like uh, they they had their big announcement of like we're gonna release a new class, and then it was the Artificer, and I was like, Artificer was old when I started playing. You came out with that at Nemeron, and it was banned because they'd seen so many people screw it up before I asked. <laughs> I'm just picturing you screaming, "Soiling green is people." I occasionally have that moment, but it's the. It's kind of, especially if you're talking to someone who this is either like their their first game they've played or they don't have a lot of experience with a bunch of different playing systems, it's kind of like trying to explain how French works to someone who like has only ever spoken Midwestern English of, they'll get it eventually, but you might have to teach them enough of the core concepts for them to look back and go, oh, this is really different. But there is there, there is this, that inherent... Mm, is it's it's something that lots of people have said of like they want a game that's easy to pick up and play they want a game that they don't have to do a lot of planning for that you know there's no calculus required to run a CR18 party for the end of the game and i get that but you know it does kind of get to that point where i sort of feel like i'm playing slightly more complicated hero quest and that's not really what i showed up for <laughs> Also, I'm kind of forced to port everything to 5e in order to get it released, so... So, so it's it's be, it, a, a little bit of the, the psychological a bit. There, There's a there's a thing that, is, is, as Alex will confirm, of once per month, I will just, like, rip open my door. Here's a new thing that pisses me off about this edition. Because there, there are certain things you just assume, like, a high-fantasy RPG that will have as just part of the framework of that's in the rulebook somewhere, I won't have to make it up myself. And then I'll go to check, and I'll be like, what do you mean we don't have rules for that in this edition? You gave us necromancers, but you didn't give us an entire chart of undead we can create? Or how that's done? What the hell do you mean we can't do that? Because I'm used to games where it's like, as a necromancer, like, I have a body. The body might be a person. It might be a wolf. It might be a moose. It might be a T-Rex. Whatever it is, I can still, like, raise it as my undead servant if I am powerful enough. And 5e is just like, uh, you got humans or uh, not humans. What are the not humans? Uh, all the other humanoid races that aren't people. Also, they can only ever have this much hit dice. And these are the only abilities they get. You, you gave us a level 1 to 20 necromancer, and that's all you're giving us? Yeah, deal with it. Which is frustrating, because the second city I'd made for my setting is run by a guild of necromancers, so I kind of expected them to have a little more. And I, I had that question of, do I reinvent the wheel? How, how much do I expect people to actually use out of this? So, so I have to ask, you know, how much of a problem did you have with the Ranger class in 5e? Oh, they have a Ranger class? I didn't notice. <laughs> it is, like, yeah. I appreciate that they tried. I have made several different uh, archetypes and versions of it that I feel are, this is probably the one time where I'm like, no, that was bad. We're giving you something workable. <laughs> well, you just look for whoever's sobbing at the table. <laughs> and just hand it to him. It's like, why do I even have this ability? It's fine, I replaced it with something good. <laughs> uh, so, you know, speaking about character classes and getting something good, um, we promised the audience you'd talk to us a little bit about your method for generating... Absolutely. So there's probably three major elements to it, if I'm if I'm breaking down the process for, for people who are... Who are not familiar with like my games or my write-ups or anything like that of like first question is ask like what purpose does this character fulfill either narratively or mechanically 
And it's like sometimes you'll be like, I want a character who fulfills, you know, the the farm boy who becomes a knight archetype. Okay, how do I go about that? Or like, I want someone who's you know, a noble born who who learns about what it's like to live as a commoner and overthrows the monarchy, something like that. It's like, or alternatively, ask, you know, like look around at the group of like, what do we need? It's like, in order for us to function and not die, what do we need? The answer is usually a cleric because no one wants to be a cleric, but occasionally. It's like you'll find, like, yeah, we don't have a melee combatant. We don't have an arcane caster. We don't have whatever it is. And so, like, you sort of decide whether you want to fill that role and how you want to fill it. And then once you've kind of decided the broad strokes of, like, this is the story arc I want to have, this is my general purpose role, whether it's I'm the guy with skills, I'm, I'm the person who can heal, I'm the one who buffs the party, whatever it is. You then go through all the different options you have and because we live in the age of the internet you can go to youtube you can go to forums you can do whatever and you can just enlist all of the people who have the resources you may not have and just figure out what is a way that jives with your vision of the character but which doesn't sacrifice functionality which is is an issue i've i found a lot of players uh particularly newer players of they'll they'll get a very strong idea in their head of what their character is and what they can or can't do and then they'll show up and the player in their brain does not match the character on their sheet and then they end up getting very frustrated or like everyone at the table is looking at them is like i i thought you were bringing like someone who could fight i did you brought a bard with no strength or dexterity what are you fighting with Panache. Strong words. Strong words. That's what you're fighting with. We're going to see a whole lot of vicious mockery out of this guy. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you can find a way to do as much damage with vicious mockery as a barbarian with a great axe can do in full rage, I salute you. Play that until the game dies. <laughs> um, so that's definitely a very Pathfinder slash 5e slash oh, yeah. four-man adventure group sort of, sort of method. Uh, what do you do in like World of Darkness, where you know that isn't as much of a thing? I have. It's a small advantage, and anyone who hasn't done this, like once once we can all do this safely, I recommend you try it. Of most of the World slash Chronicles of Darkness games that I've played, have been in LARP format, so there's a lot less pressure for you to fulfill certain roles because like there's 17 of us here. If something comes, we win. There is no one thing that can take on like that many werewolves at once we're, we're fine so you can you can focus on on other things generally um for it's it's kind of a running gag that i had specifically for world of darkness games of if you're ever worried that when you step on the floor or show up to the table that your character will be either ignored or not deemed important or there's going to be like nine other versions of like the shtick you brought you play one of three things and that is like a cop a doctor or a lawyer don't One of these three things will just yeah. I'm telling you guys, do not play a lawyer. But <laughs> it's like one of those three things will be necessary. As it was the the gag that I had. Speaking of dreaming, of I I played a troll who was a um, a psychiatrist who before that had been a general practitioner. And so I'm just like, yeah, this is nice and easy. I'll show up and like I have I have a definite idea. I have a thing that I'm good at. 30 seconds into game, without my knowledge, I'm just being dragged over to plot because no one had mentioned to me that, like, six PCs in-game were pregnant. Oh. And no one in the whole thing had any dots of medicine. No one knew anything about, like, psychiatry. Nobody had any real knowledge of the occult. There were a bunch of bruisers on one side and a bunch of 
just like weird politicians on the other side and they were all completely unprepared for this plot. And I found that happens just over and over and over again of just the archetypes people fall into are rarely it's like who has authority, who has knowledge, who stops us from dying. Everyone like wants to be like you know, the motorcycle riding badass or the, the rich business owner who has like millions and millions of dollars to blow, which is fun if you do that. Um, but you know, everybody everybody's gonna get into trouble, everybody's gonna need someone to cover for them, everybody's gonna need someone to pull out the bullets. Kind of what I'm distilling from your general method is that one of the questions you ask yourself is, what will my character be able to do? That's a big part of it. I found that, although, don't go too far in that direction, because you will end up, like, tying yourself to another character, and if they don't get involved in plot, you don't get involved in plot. I made that mistake playing somebody's bodyguard. Uh, <laughs> it is particularly for games that aren't party-based or aren't table-based of... You kind of have to decide your own level of involvement, and a big part of that is make characters who want to be there. Whether it's like, I want to be going to court, I want to show up at the Elysium, I have vested interests in things that are going on, I have friends here, whatever it is. It is, it is a great desire in all of us to play like the awesome loner in the corner with his hood up and shadows and weird effects whenever someone looks at us. No one ever interacts with that character. Do not bring them. <laughs> this is actually a reoccurring thing this season already. And I think that this is the, the, the advice there has been play a character that wants to participate. Um, yeah, it helps if you play someone who has something they bring to the table as, as, as a sort of the, the distillation of the general thought process of its. It was, it was an article I did a bit ago that got quite a lot of pushback, but you know, it's, it's one of those of why are you booing? You know I'm right. It's, it's the it's like lots of times the challenge of games assumes that you know your characters have certain skills have certain resources that they can succeed against the challenges being put up against them. Don't bring a wizard with an int of nine who can't cast spells because you know, like it would be cool to see them like overcome that and eventually become good at stuff. We're expecting like top of the class <laughs> um, or like you know some yeah you know, stuff like that of it's. I get the the story appeal and the like the archetype that we see in so much of our of our fantasy fiction, but when dice are involved, we don't get to write the result. So the numbers need to be on your side. Well, also, you know, to some degree, the other people in the party are alive, and you know, as, as don't be a boat anchor. Yeah. Last question uh, before we close up. Um, you've already you know shared a lot of wisdom with, with the audience. I'm sure they appreciate that, but. Um, you know, say you're the, the mentor dying in the first chapter of a fantasy, and you can utter out one piece of advice to the new player as they move forward. What are you telling them? Mm. To the players who need to come to the table, understand what you want and explain it to your GM. Because if the two of you have irreconcilable differences, it's better to find out at session zero than when you're 12 levels in and shouting at each other. I think that's that's good advice in game. That's also good good advice for maintaining out of game. Really. <laughs> and uh, you know, thank to the audience. Thank you for listening today. Neil was gracious enough, uh, shared quite a bit with us, so we appreciate that. Thank you for coming, Neil. And uh, thank you uh, for the audience. If you're craving additional content, you can follow me at at Schmombrew on Twitter. That's at s h m o m b r e w, or check out our website at www.homebrewschmombrew.com. Uh, Rodney, where can the listeners find you? 
Um, you can find me now on Instagram. We now have a Schmobrew homebrew account that we're, we're getting up and running, so you can find me on there. You can also find me on Twitter under Dr. Zoggle. That's D-R-Z-O-G-G-L-E, and also on Discord. Just ask me on Twitter, and I'll add you. Also, if you're on the podcast page on your phone or device of choice, please like and subscribe. We love you very much, and five-star us because we, will, we, we like it. We like it a lot. <laughs> We also enjoy your sweet, sweet comments, so please uh, put some of those our way. Um, and finally, Neil, where can the listeners find you if they want to learn more? Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter uh, at N-L-I-T-H-E-R-L. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Neil F. Litherland. Uh, you can find my blog, taking10.blogspot.com. Um, that should give them all the information they need to track me down. I'm also going to jump in there. There's also the Literary Mercenary where they can find you when you're interested in writing. Um, and uh, that can, that put, completes another episode of Homebrew Homebrew. Please add 125 experience points to your character sheet, and we hope to see you next time. Mm-hmm.